Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man who's been on our airwaves pretty much every day for the last 36 years. First on Radio 1, then 5 Live, Radio 2, Scala, and now Greatest Hits, where he's in charge of drive time. As well as ruling the airwaves, he's also an author with his children's trilogy, Itch, adapted to CBBC, and one of his four novels was optioned for the big screen before he'd even written a word of it. One of the first to the podcast party, where he continues to reign supreme alongside Mark Commode with an extended version of their award-winning Radio 5 live show, Commode and Mayo's Film Review. He also podcasts his confession strand from his radio show, which he launched back in the late 80s on Radio 1. He's been married to Hillary for 36 years. They live in London with their three now grown-up children. Interestingly, for a man who's paid to talk, he's not one to talk about himself and rarely gives interviews. So I'm thrilled that he's decided to make an exception for me today. Let's dial him up. It's Simon Mayo. Yeah, but I might be monosyllabic in my replies, you know, because your assessment is is entirely correct. Yeah, you don't. You don't like talking about yourself. I would far rather ask questions rather than answer them. Uh, Snap. That's true. And I'm afraid I am only drinking water uh, instead of wine, but I might catch up on the wine later. Maybe a glass of Gavi. That's my current favourite. Me too. Isn't that funny? I've only recently discovered Gavi, but it's a really nice, fresh, crisp wine, isn't it? I'll go with that. We ran into each other at work the other day in the corridor, as as one does. Just so the the listener knows, you and I work at, at Greatest Hits on the network. I have just joined. Um, I'll be really honest, one of the major reasons I did 
was because you're there. Oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. Okay, well, I hope I don't let you down in any way, but... Um... It's the home of it's the home of established great broadcasters, and the music is undeniably danceably fantastic. So that those two things that come together, you've got got this this great host of broadcasters that are working there. But you were the first at the table, and all of this kind of takes me quite nicely um, to my first question for you. Are you ready? New beginnings have become something of a feature in your life over the last few years, from starting out as an author in your 50s to launching new networks like Scala, Scala Radio, as well as being at the frontier of podcasts here in the UK. I mean, you were doing it pretty much before anyone even knew what a podcast was. So what I wanted to know from you is what new starts or resets have been the most challenging and yet the most rewarding as you look back. The one that is, I would hone in on, and I think the one that ticks all the boxes that you've just been asking is leaving Radio 1 and going to 5 Live. That was the, <clears throat> that was, <laughs> that was the, most, um, the most kind of disruptive and the most challenging and then ultimately the most rewarding because... Uh-huh. So this is end of 2000, beginning of 2001. And it was... Being, being at Radio 1 was everything that I'd want... You know, it's all I'd wanted to be you know I just wanted to be a radio one presenter that and and then I was and then when I was one I wanted to be the breakfast show presenter and I was the breakfast show presenter and then everything but everything has its course everything has its lifespan mm. and there's you know <laughs> there's no doubt because radio one is obviously a youth station that you you know you feel the advancing years there um sooner than you do anywhere else so I had kind of thought to the extent I mean, I thought about it a bit and I can't, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, I imagine maybe I'll go to Radio 2 after Radio 1. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I then had lunch with Bob Shannon, who at the time was controller of Five Live, and I thought I was pitching an idea to him. In fact, I did pitch an idea to him, but then he was sort of only half interested in that and more interested in saying, would you like to do the afternoon show? And I was completely gobsmacked by that because the idea of doing a speech show a talk show had not occurred to me at all and I didn't know if I was going to be you know I don't know I didn't know what I thought about it it was just you know it had come come completely from from the side and anyway people don't want to know all the boring details. No but what's probably worth reiterating here is that actually talk speech radio I mean you were doing radio one and had you know bossing it there but it's music radio speech radio is an entirely different beast it's a different discipline different animal correct and uh, so i had done 15 years um, at radio one which is you know you have to say that's kind that's probably long (laughs) enough you know unless you're a a john peel or an annie nightingale or someone like that in which case yeah you can last forever so i didn't dispute that it was time to be thinking about something else and i agreed to go to five live and i thought it was going to be exciting i found the end of radio one to be pretty traumatic just because I was leaving Radio One. Everything was everything was harmonious and everything was by agreement. Um, there were a couple of things happening at home. My father had died, and my wife was having a hip replacement, and that was obviously quite uh, that was quite stressful. And then, so I took a couple of months off, uh, and also just to sort of practice going to Five Live. And from music to speech is such a. I mean, obviously, there's a radio discipline. But essentially, I was learning a whole new way of broadcasting, mm. learning a new discipline, 
learning sort of new furniture, learning how to uh, get from one item and get to the next one and then deal with breaking news. It's a com- it's just a totally different way of operating. And if you've got a if you're doing music radio and you've got a guest and the guest turns out to be useless, do a couple of minutes, play another piece of music and if it, you know, it's still not going to work, you can just play some more music, it's fine. On 5, I just you realize, you know, most of the guests were great, but occasionally there's a bummer and you go, okay, I've just got to make this last for 20 25 minutes or however long <laughs> uh, it was. So, it was a question of learning how to Stop, say you're interviewing an actor, break away from interviewing the actor, go to the result of a court case, which has just come through. So you interrupt one thing, you go to the court case, you ask the right questions, uh, you end that, you go back to something, then something terrible happens and you have to incorporate everything all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So learning a new discipline, I was <clears throat> I was petrified and I was terrified. I get it because also it drew it, it it necessitated that you be a journalist and that is not what you trained to be and it's not what you had been. I mean, you did it with great panache um, and you didn't seem for a second like the new kid on the block. But the imposter syndrome must have been quite rife. Imposter syndrome, I think, is should be a part of almost everyone's life. And uh, my theory is that the only people who don't suffer from imposter syndrome are the people who should. Um <laughs> The egomaniac. Yes, the exactly. Do you think for one moment Trump has ever thought, hey, should I actually should I be here? Be doing this? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. so uh, Bob Shannon had said to me, you know, bad things happen and you'll have to learn to deal with that. Um, and so I joined in May and September the 11th, 2001 was obviously um, a momentous and terrifying day. So 9-11 happened in the afternoon and happened on the show. So that sort of dominated everything for the next the next few years so you negotiate your way around that and you're right i was working with some of the greatest journalists in the mm. world you know john simpson would come up to do a live two-way from the iraq war and you stop what you're doing and you talk to him for the five minutes you've got him and then you go and you do something else this is extraordinary mind-blowing stuff so you sort of learn your way around doing speech radio and you know and you i went to the world cup football, went to the World Cup cricket, went to the United Nations, went to the Scottish Parliament, went to the Welsh Assembly, interviewed Gerry Adams, or, you know, all these things, you know, you, you, so you're learning, you're learning, learning, learning all the time. You know, that's exciting and it's tough and it's hard work. But the other part of your question was the, where it's rewarding. Mm. And I think out of all of this that we're talking about, um, my interest in books and writing came. Um, because we interviewed two authors every Thursday as a kind of a regular books feature, long before doing books on a regular basis was part of radio life, as it is pretty much everywhere. Um, I developed a, a, a love of science. All this fed into the itch books, which which came as soon as I left Five Live, because we interviewed. Uh, it was a deliberate policy decision that uh, to talk to scientists properly and give, not, give them not 90 seconds to explain complicated theories, but to talk to them at length about their ideas. So we give them half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, I learned how to do interviews and uh, the joy and delight in asking a short question and not, and not the long questions, which we all like to uh, answer. Um, it was a start again of, of properly doing... Um, the five live version of the film show. So I'd worked with Mark Kermode at Radio 1. One of the first things I wanted to do was to bring him back, so we started doing Wittertainment. So that was like a 45-minute part of Friday's programme and then became the two-hour uh, programme. And 
also just to tie into the writing, because I was working with journalists, I, I did develop a, uh, an appreciation of the art of being a great journalist. I wasn't one, but I worked with a lot of them. And working at Working at Five Live was, you know, extre extremely important. And doing that afternoon show was extremely challenging, but it was rewarding. Do you think as well it was a sort of boy-to-man passage in as much as you left Radio 1 as a DJ, a celebrated DJ, the, the, the most successful in the land, but actually it was at Five Live where, you know, because of the journalism, because of the, the massive change in, in, in what you were required to mm. do on air, that's where the broadcaster in you grew and blossomed. I think people, I think certainly people saw you in a different light. You know, mm. if you've, <laughs> so before I joined Nicky Campbell, who'd gone before me and he was, <clears throat> he was doing the phone in and he'd gone from Radio 1. So, but there was definitely, I think, and Nicky had it worse than me. There was definitely a kind of, who the heck is this guy coming from Radio 1? Why are we hiring him? And that changed after, I mean, most, I mean, obviously after 9-11 and, everything that came after that. That was your baptism by fire, 9-11. Could you, could you carry a broadcast like that that was so important um, on such an important network um, and not drop yeah. the ball? And you didn't. How did you it feel was... coming off air that day? Well, it was my daughter's eighth birthday and I knew that we had a birthday party lined up um, when I got home. But I was not really... <laughs> you know, it was... A... <clears throat> When I think about it now, I think when we were doing the program, <clears throat> you respond because you're aware you're aware that you have. It was one of those few moments. The whole of the network stops what it's doing and works towards whoever's on air. So there aren't a whole bunch of different programs. There's just one program, and suddenly you realise that everybody has realised what's happening, and so everything was feeding to, feeding into your show. So you just keep telling the story, saying what you're looking at on the monitors talking to the reporters as they come up to you and just keep on trying to tell the story. As it got towards the end of the show, I looked through the glass and I could see uh, the controller, Bob Shannon. He was standing next to Jenny Abramsky, who was the head of radio. He was standing next to Greg Dyke, who was the director general. And they were all sort of gobsmacked. And I, I you know, staring at the monitor, listening to the output. And I, I remember thinking, this, you know, the last couple of minutes, I think, were a shambles because I was starting to unwind um, or unravel, I think is a better word. Unravel, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and then drive came on at four. But for the most part, you're carried on by the momentum of saying what's happening, explaining as far as you can, repeating what's happening, talking to the experts when they come on. So that actually you were telling one story, it was a complicated story, but it, it had its own momentum. The most difficult program I think I did when I was at five was the day of the Potter's Bar train crash, which was a Friday, and we were doing movies at the same time. And I was interviewing Sean Pertwee about a horror film that he was in. And we had to keep cutting between Sean Pertwee talking about his horror movie and the real-life horror of the Potter's Bar train crash. And... Uh, another scene from Through the Glass where my editor was having a stand-up argument with his boss and his boss was saying, you've got to roll with this story. And my editor was saying, we don't have enough uh, information to roll with this story. And so as a result of that, anyway, so we flip-flop between one and the other. And that was that was really challenging. But then that's that's the nature of of talk radio. You know, you, you deal, you know, you, you have your guests, you have your features... You do live news and you do live sport. So challenging and rewarding, yes, certainly.
but those moments are are what make you as a professional aren't they i i i had a similar experience i'd had eight hours of television experience and i was aware the day that diana died and i came off air and up until that point i had always felt kind of like i shouldn't be there and after that it wasn't that i felt that i could belong to yeah. i just felt like i didn't want to be anywhere else sure and when those stories come your way you just i guess it helps if you have sound instincts you know and if you can keep it all together um yeah. and not speculate i think that's the i think that was something that had been drummed into me that you don't you, it is just the facts ma'am that's what it is there was a, a couple of weeks after it might have been a month after 9-11 there was a plane crash in new york and and people died it was, it was a tragic plane crash and the temptation to speculate was incredibly strong because 9-11 was mm. so vivid in everybody's minds but was in, would have been entirely inappropriate because it turned out it had nothing to do with terrorism. Mm. It, it was just it was just a plane crash. So you go, you rely as you did when Diana died. You just rely on those instincts which you've developed and 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 you know and trust that it's sound. Um, and and when those moments come along, sometimes you think this might be interesting, but then sometimes breaking news happens and you have to uh, just roll with the punches. I mean, there was a, a time when I I was interviewing. It was. From one guest to another. So the first guest was Bob Wilson, um, Arsenal and Scotland goalkeeper. And he was talking about the his life in the Cancer Foundation, the, the charity that he'd set up after his mm. daughter had died. Then the next guest, nothing to do with Bob, was Billy Bragg, who was in to promote a, a compilation CD that he had out. Billy comes in and sits down, realises what Bob's talking about, Billy stands up, goes out, walks into the control. There's another control room story through the glass, and I can see he's talking to people in there. Billy Bragg comes back in. He sort of joins in the conversation at that point, and he starts talking about how his father had died from, from cancer, and he'd written a song, which is included on the compilation, and the song is called Tank Park Salute, and it's not a song that I had heard. Billy introduces it, and he says, you know, when he plays it live, his, his roadies say to him, if he has a roadie, anyway, I don't know. Anyway, the people he's working with say, "Can you tell us? Can you tell us if you're going to play it? Because I need to, I need to prepare myself for it." So he'd introduced this song about his how his father had um, had died, and he'd written this song, "Tank Park Salute." He said, I, "I, I won't explain the title, and I never have explained the title." So we then play the song, and Bob is listening, and Billy is listening, and I'm hearing this song for the first time. As I mentioned earlier, my father had died about a year before. And I, I tell you now, I have a memory of um, feeling as though I was going to lose it. And I was digging my fingernails into my palms just to make sure that I, I could still speak properly at the back of it. And what we had off the, off the back of that was 10 minutes probably of three guys talking about grief. And it wasn't planned and it wasn't in the brief. And it was just one of those moments where you have so many people who then contact the radio show and said, you know, that was amazing because guys don't have those kind of conversations very often. So. Well, I, I really hope that they do more so now, but the fact that you were, were doing it then at a time when nobody else was, there, there's great power in those moments and also great community. And that's what radio is all about, right? You're talking to people that you're most likely never meet 
but they are your community. They come to you. They kind of come to your church every day to yeah. listen in. Yeah, it's a very it's a very intimate medium, and you know, I mean, many people have said this before. Um, people care very passionately about the radio station that they listen to, in a way that they don't about television. They care about television programs, but they'll find the program. You know, if I'm if I like the new drama with Helen Mirren, whether it's on BBC Sky, wherever. I'll go and find it. Yeah. Um, whereas radio has loyalty in a way that television doesn't, I think. I think that's true. And so you have that one-to-one communication, and it's very intimate communication. And, uh, and I think that's why radio and audio and audio entertainment and podcasts um, are, still, are still the bee's knees. I, I would agree with so much of that, although I do think that you, in so many ways, um, fly in the face of what you've just said. Because I think you're right. So many of us tune into a network and we don't touch that dial. We leave it on. That's our radio station. You've taken your audiences with you from Radio 1 over to 5 Live. They travelled with you to Radio 2. You went to Scala, which was so different. I mean, I mean, you think Radio 1 and Radio 5 Live were different. Well, so was going from 2 to Scala. You launched a modern-day classical music radio station. And, yes. and you were the face and, and, the, and the voice of that. And then Greatest Hits, which now, you know, is the home of great music from the 70s, 80s and 90s, headed up by, I hope, great broadcasters that know their onions. Um, but I think, so, so yes, people are network loyal. But I also think that there are the exceptional broadcasters that come along that acquire, like a Pied Piper, huge audiences well. that travel with them. And you are that, sir. Well, that's very kind of you. I mean, we'll find out, won't we? But, you know. You talk about that moment of moving to Five Life and all of the things that came as a result of that. A moment, a leap of great faith, a bravery, uh, you know, jumping into a job that you weren't specifically qualified to do, but learn on the job. But it led to, to two really important strings to your bow. Podcasting, of which you were one of the very first in, in the UK to, to get ahead on that game. And also the writing, which came yes. about in your 50s and yes. has become, I mean, like one of your novels was was option for the big screen. Following the televised um, dramas of your, your children's trilogies, it was option before you'd even got past the synopsis. That's huge. Uh, that was, well, that was, yes. I mean, so, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, the world of publishing I mean, you're, you're essentially right. I started writing when I when I got to about 50 and to start something new in your 50s was very exciting mm. and has shaped uh, my life in a way that I, I definitely wasn't uh, expecting it to. Yeah. Um, the first three books were all, all part of the itch books, um, which, by the way, this week they just announced that they're going to make an opera out of the first book. No. Yes, that is genuinely true. Um <laughs> congratulations yeah i mean i don't know quite i don't know how quite how they're going to do it but you know if they think that they can then i'm very happy to say yes okay you go ahead and make an opera the script that you're talking about was mad blood stirring so i had an idea for a book um which is based on a true story uh about uh, an incident that happened in dartmoor prison in 1814 and 1815 and i wrote a two-page synopsis maybe a four-page synopsis uh, and that was optioned um, uh, immediately, yes, before I actually started the book. Something that is very rare and hasn't, hap- hasn't happened to-, to me since. I have to say, the movie hasn't happened yet either. There is a screenplay, there is a director uh, who's working on it. I don't think anything's been announced yet, but anyway, so I'm still... You know, yeah, but uh, these things take 
Years. Years oh. and years and years and years. I mean, anything under 10 years is speedy. I mean, I had, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, the thing is, mm. in radio, everything is so fast. You think of an idea, you, you, you know, you can do that. You can do it that afternoon. And then yeah. you move on to the next one. Publishing, that takes years. Movies, that takes decades. Yes. I mean, so, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not a very patient person, particularly. And so I do find that quite um, frustrating. But, you know, I've had to learn uh, to adapt to a slightly different rhythm when it comes to writing. uh, And all I can do is write the story, then hand it over. If it if it gets optioned, that's great. If anything happens to that, I mean, itch took. So itch was 2000 and mm, 2010. It finally was published. In 2018 is when they started filming the TV show mm. in, in Australia. So that's so that's eight years, you know. Yeah. So there you go. That's amazing. That's how long it takes. That's why we've got to live long lives, just so that actually we can reap the rewards Absolutely. of our hard work, Simon. <laughs> I fully, I fully intend to. That's why I'm drinking water and not and not wine. <laughs> not in the daytime, no. Um, very quickly, podcasting. How exciting was it for you to be at the kind of the forefront of that and to see? the audience reaction, the fact that, you know, in an age where we're told everyone's got the attention span of a gnat and everything's going to be short, sharp, a minute 30, a minute this, oh, that actually long-form listens, you put it out there and people will come. We had, well, I mean, that's that's very kind of you. Basically, we just had no idea what we were doing. We, I mean, we, <laughs> you know, you say we're at the forefront. I mean, and we you were, were. in as much as the, the film show became a podcast very, but we had absolutely no idea. Well, you know, they said, oh, you, we've made it into a podcast. Oh, really? In fact, to start with, the BBC in their wisdom said you couldn't call it a podcast. Um, you had to call it a download. And So BBC. Because the podcast, you know, was obviously part, you know, felt as though it was part of the iPod. Um, yeah. We were advertising Apple. And I was sort of, I pushed back on it and saying, you... It, the BBC cannot decide what things are called. You know, this is it's not the way English uh, develops. Um, if it's called a podcast, it's called a podcast. You can download a podcast, but you cannot really call it a download. Anyway, <clears throat> so when when the, when the film show sort of started off as a podcast, we it it was a, a fairly stunted thing. It was just like a version of, I think it was just what we did on the radio, and then as things took off. Um, it just became it just became bigger, and then when I left Five Live, it's the afternoon show, and the film thing became a two-hour show. Then that's when <clears throat> we realised that we had to do special introductions, and we had it developed sort of a life of its own. So yes, we were there at the beginning, but not through any design. It's just it it happened around us rather than us having any knowledge of the art of podcasting. Well. Thanks, thanks for uh, you know building the roads out like the Romans. I appreciate it. Yeah, as well, I sit here know, I talking mean, to you on my own. <laughs> well, you know, it, it. Well, it's been a pleasure. I, I just wish I could say that I saw it. I saw it coming, <laughs> and there was any there was any kind of foresight involved, but there wasn't. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I noticed in my research that in 1986, you made commitments to people and roles and ideas that have been seminal in your life ever since. You proposed to your wife on the chime of midnight uh, of that year. You joined Radio 1 from BBC Radio Nottingham and you launched Confessions, which is still a part of your everyday output. Um, So I want to know what other years in your life have proven to have such a vintage and why? Well... I don't think there's ever going to be a year to replace 86 in as much as you're right. I did get married in 86 and I did join Radio 1 in 86. Um, Slight, the slight correction is I didn't, Confessions came along when I started Breakfast and Breakfast was 1988. So I'm I'm going to, so if I'm looking for kind of pivotal years, Mm. the years I'm going for, whilst acknowledging that nothing is going to be as pivotal as 86, I'm going to go for 88 and I'm going to go for 2010. You know, with, with a, obviously the kids came along in 91, 93 and 99. So they were obviously uh, important moments. But, you know, put them to one side for the moment. Um, 1988 was the year I took over the breakfast show. And I think, pro- I mean, probably everything else has come. In, in one sense, everything has come from that because... Mm did it for five and a bit years and I was fortunate that it coincided with a lot of Radio 1 expansion because the FM transmitters were being switched on around the country and Mm. so it was a time of Radio 1 development a lot of new listeners coming along we were trying a new format and so I was working with people in the studio this is quite quite a challenge for me because I've always liked to be on my own in the studio uh well I, I did up until 1988 some radio presenters are a little bit uh, obsessive like that. But they wanted to try <clears throat> kind of zoo format, for want of a better word. So over the over the years, uh, we started with Carol Dooley. Rod read the news, Rod McKenzie, Sybil Roscoe, Diane Oxbury, may she rest in peace, Jackie Brambles, who's now with us at Greatest Hits Radio, Peter Bowes. Yeah. All these people came in, re- read the news, did where the travel, just joined in the, joined in the fun. But... Getting the chemistry right of a breakfast show, you know, is it's kind of an art, but it's also an accident and you can stumble into something and work out, oh, that works. Oh, that didn't work. More of that, less of the other. But confessions developed from there, you know, from and it was just going to be a short, a short running feature. 
And I think it started out as a record amnesty. Uh, and it was, you know, records in your collection which you should have given back, but you didn't give them back. And we offered people an opportunity to write in and tell us what the records were and who should have them, and then you can take them back. And out of that, this is a very sort of sketchy memory, but it is a long time ago, out of that, people then started writing in. So the, these are, of course, letters put into envelopes with stamps um, yeah. <laughs> and a couple of pages, sometimes typewritten, usually handwritten. Uh, people sending in stories and saying, oh, by the way, and I also was responsible for this. And out of that, it just, you know, it exploded from there. And so uh, we did confessions all the way through breakfast. Then I took them into mid-morning. Uh, and then they came back when I went back to drive time at Radio 2. So it's a surprisingly popular feature. I mean, we did three or four books. There was a TV series for a few years. There's mm -hmm. just because it's a bunch of funny stories and people telling embarrassing things about 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 themselves. Uh, so, I'm, uh, so I'm answering your question by saying I think 1988 and starting breakfast was probably uh, a pivotal year because so much has come from that. If you get the breakfast yeah. show right then everything kind of trickles down from there. And people remember, um, I did, uh, a few months ago, I played, I was about to play FM by Steely Dan, but I prefixed it by saying, I'm about to play the track that launched the, so Radio 1 were quite embarrassed by the fact that just, I mean, it just happened because engineering priorities, but the first FM switch on was in London. And they would rather that it wasn't because BBC scene is too London centric. Anyway, so I was doing early weekends, I think. So it's like six o'clock on a Saturday morning. The first FM switch on had happened, and the first track that I played was FM by Steely Dan. So and I and I'd said, right, I'm going to play the first track that I played on Radio One when the London transmitter went on. I bet no one remembers what it was. And, of course, a stupid thing to say because we've got inundated with people saying, yes, it was FM by Dan, and I was listening, which is making reference back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, if, yeah. if you're very fortunate, the listeners go with you. So 88, I would say, is, the, is a pivotal year. And 2010, I'm picking because that was the year that the iPad was um, marketed. It finally became uh, available, being talked about for a long time, and the iPad was available to purchase. Now, this is a strange thing to mention. It ties back to the writing because I had never written anything, Kate, nothing. I had, not, uh, all the time I've been interviewing authors at Five Live, I wasn't, in, I'd never thought, oh, I should, I should write a book. Then a number of things happened which made me think, oh, I'm going to. So the first thing was that my youngest, who was 10 at the time, came back from school and he was only interested in science. He wasn't interested in anything at all. Mm -hmm. And for some reason that I still can't quite remember, I thought I would write him a short story, but I didn't know what that short story would be, but it would be something sciencey. Now, here arrives the iPad. And uh, I like Apple products and I like, a bit of, I like a bit of tech. And I had read that Stephen Fry particularly recommended an app for the iPad, which was an interactive periodic table. And it could do things which you couldn't do on a phone, you couldn't do on a computer, because you touched the screen and you could spin things, and it was quite extraordinary. And it's a beautiful, beautiful app, and I still like it very much. In the, in the writing and in the words that went with this, 
it used two words to describe someone who collects the periodic table. Because there are people, so there are 118 elements of the periodic table, and the, there are people who try and collect one of everything. So, you know, copper, straightforward, gold, straightforward, platinum, silver, and so on. Others slightly more difficult. The gases, for example, you know. It's like, uh, also, yeah. so others are illegal because they're radioactive. However, um, the, the name for someone who collects the periodic table is an element hunter. And this came on the app, which I got from the iPad. And as soon as I saw the phrase element hunter, I thought, well, that's a fantastic phrase. Who wouldn't want to be an element hunter? I bet someone has written a story about one of those. So I looked it up. As far as I could see, no one had. And so I thought, okay, well, that's what, I, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. And I genuinely think that if I hadn't bought the iPad, if I hadn't looked at that app as recommended by Stephen Fry, ah. I would never have written the first Itch story because Itch is an element hunter. In fact, it says on the cover, the adventures, the explosive adventures of an element hunter. Um, and that, so that, that's what he is. So I don't think, you know, it's a sliding doors thing. I think if, if it only needed one of those things not to be in place and I wouldn't have ended up writing. It just seems to me, the more I think about it, that 2010 was a pivotal year for precisely those reasons because I wouldn't have ended up writing all this nonsense. So. The danger with writing novels is you're kind of always on... You're always... The more you do it, the more you're thinking about ideas and conversations and characters and whether something that you've written works. And so your mind is always, always engaged. Um, I, I think that's... I think that's great. And then sometimes it sort of spills over into unlikely areas. So, for example, during lockdown, or you mentioned at the beginning, we had, I have three uh, adult kids. Well, the three adult kids were here. And so in the house, we had um, me and my wife, three adult kids, my eldest son's dog, and also for a period, my eldest son's partner. And we were overflowing. And it was, as everyone listening to this podcast it was a very intense period very emotional period as a result of which i wrote lyrics for a song <laughs> because it because i i wasn't writing a story at the time and i just thought i just need to write some thoughts down and i sent them to a friend of mine martin joseph who's a fantastic singer songwriter i said martin do you want this anyway he did and he's recorded it on his new album uh uh with him and janice ian and the song is called house and um, that was that was intense as well. So you never know what life's going to bring you, Kate. You know? But it's how you process what's going on around you. That's, That's exactly what it was. That's exactly yeah. what it was. It was a way of processing and dealing with the fact that the house was full, which you'd imagine is a good thing, but it was full for all the wrong reasons. And I was trying to write a, some lyrics which would suggest that an empty house is a positive thing, that a silent house is a positive thing because... Your kids have, have gone away as they should, you know, and if that they, if they were still there, that that was bad. Um, so I was trying to process that and I ended up as the lyrics of this song. And when my son moved to Copenhagen, which is where his partner uh, lives, I think, uh, you know, I think that was it was quite a it was quite a, an emotional moment when he was listening. I sent him the uh, I sent him the track from from the album and I think he found it quite emotional.
Okay, my third and final question for you. You spent years on air featuring seminal albums, but can you share with me a handful of tracks that soundtrack big moments in your own life? Records that the moment you hear them transport you back to that moment in time. I mean, I wrote down quite a long list, but I think I'll start off with um, And She Was by Talking Heads, which was the first song I played at Radio 1, only because... It was such an intense experience to... I was still at Radio Nottingham. I was doing the morning show there. And then uh, the controller, Radio 1, Johnny Beeling, I'd sent him, you know, some tapes and some ideas and things. Anyway, um, he said, come down and do two weeks stepping for Gary Davis, who did 12.45 till 3, including on Tuesday, the rundown of the chart. So I had done absolutely nothing on Radio 1 at all. Nobody knew anything about me at all. And from nowhere, I was doing two weeks of lunchtime. I knew it was going to be, you know, I knew it was very important. And I knew I would be absolutely terrified. And I can still remember sitting through the news beat from 12.30 to 12.45. You know, it's the, the most lonely experience. You got the engineer through the glass over to your right. The only good thing was that the producer who had been driving me, who I was going to work with, who was a guy called Paul Williams, who was Gary's producer, was driving me absolutely to distraction. Um, and he was fortunately ill uh, on that day, uh, and as a result of that, he was replaced by Malcolm Brown, who was Steve, Steve Wright's producer, who was the exact opposite and very calm and chilled. And he, he would open the studio door and say, everything all right? And I'd go, yes, Malcolm, everything's fine. He'd go, fine. And he just got out of my hair, which is exactly what I wanted. And then Newsbeat finishes, jingles play. I've got to get that voiceover right. You know, I've got to get that first. It comes so... And she was starts with a hey from David Byrne. And then it's got like a 10 second, nine second kind of instrumental bit, which I talked over, introduced myself, saying Gary Davis is away, blah, blah, blah. The voiceover worked. And after that, it was fine. But in terms of that kind of full on sensory experience, shaking, sweating, um, uh, terrifying, <laughs> thrilled, everything all at the same time. And she was talking heads is one of those is just one of those moments which I, you know, so the song always, well, every time it comes on, it cannot help but take me back to Studio Egg, uh, Studio Egton, I can't remember which studio it was. Anyway, one of the Egton House studios and sitting there being absolutely terrified and thrilled at the same time. Because if your dream is to be a radio DJ, there was no better place to be at that time than Radio One. Those very first words that you spoke into that mic must have felt enormous tumbling from your lips. Yeah, when I listen, when I listen back, because it was the anniversary, <clears throat> uh, it was someone put them out uh, on on Twitter, uh, someone who recorded it, and there was David Lloyd actually at Boom, and he he, I did I did an interview with him, and it was a bit of that interview, and the first few words that I had introducing, Talking Heads, and my voice sounds very high pitched. It's like I've been inhaling helium, uh, you know. Uh, it was it was one of those. But but and important to say two things. One, Radio One was so big in in eighty six. Um, I mean, not as big as it was early eighties and late seventies, <clears throat> entirely because there was no other choice, you know. Um, but obviously, as things have got more disparate, audiences have got more um, shared around. But it would have been quite possible to have done two weeks on Gary Davis, mess them up and never be on Radio 1 ever again. That was quite likely. Um, so it was a two-week audition, um, 
but it's a bit like making your audition at the O2, you know, uh, in, fr- yeah. in front of the, or at Wembley Stadium or somewhere like that, you know. Absolutely. I should also say, just as a kind of PS, that the David Byrne concert that he did uh, 2018, 2019, the shows that he did were some of the best shows that I've ever been to. One of the most innovative guys of all time and the concerts that he's been doing are extraordinary. So that's, you know, so that was fantastic. But yes, yeah, so and she was talking as his track number one. Okay, so what are your other significant tracks? Well, um, to no one's great surprise, I would suggest um, Born to Run uh, by Bruce Springsteen. Um, it was the first track that I played when I started at Radio 2 Drive Time. It was the first track that I started with when I started Greatest Hits Drive Time. And it, I think David, it's David Hepworth who described it as lightning in a bottle, which is, it's just one of those unbeatable records which manages in a few minutes to encapsulate some, some of the production, the vocals, the passion, everything about it is quite extraordinary. And your opening record is, you know, it's a, you know, it's a statement. And... Um, so, you know, I I didn't really have to think long and hard. I was a late convert to Bruce Springsteen. I was never never a huge fan through the 80s. I only got into him really in the 90s. Once you get a gig like Drive Time, either at Radio 2 and then another chance to do it at Greatest Hits Radio, Born to Run is a seminal and unbeatable record. Maybe the best track of the 70s. Maybe. And I never get, to, I never get tired of hearing it. And obviously we play it a lot at Greatest Hits because that's exactly the kind of thing we like to play and I was fortunate enough to interview Bruce for his uh, memoir also called Born to Run and that was just a delightful delightful experience so I think because it takes me back to the start of two show I mean essentially the drive time show I'm doing now is a continuation of the drive time show that I did at Radio 2 and was so rudely interrupted for reasons that I can't remember obviously um, and but the song that started them both was born to run so that's so that's candidate one candidate two is sultans of swing dire straits and the reason that uh, reason i mentioned that is that i was at warwick university and i listened to i used to work quite late at night doing the you know the academic work and i always had john peel on and john peel was 10 to midnight and then there was the midnight news <clears throat> brian matthew radio 2 and the fm went from Radio 1 to Radio 2. John Peel, of course, is associated with grungy um, bands that were difficult to listen to, but he played lots of pretty mainstream stuff as well. And the first, he was the first person on Radio 1 to play Sultans of Swing. And he introduced it by saying, so I, I'm at my little desk with the window open and working away, and he introduced it by saying, I'm not sure about the singer, but he can certainly play the guitar. And then he played Sons of Swing. And then he played it every single day for a long period of time. And I used to listen to his program and wait for him to play Sons of Swing, which is the reason why I get very annoyed when on the radio, normally the version that is played is the album version, but the single edit is different and it sounds different. So there is a, every time the correct version comes on, this is very anal and very boring, it has to be the right version. Every time the seven-inch vinyl version of Sultans of Swing comes on, it takes me back to being 
first year university, sitting at my desk, trying to work out what the hell I was supposed to be doing uh, with a particular essay about Edmund Burke or something like that, or whatever. Um, and it, so it's very, very evocative, and it immediately takes me back to the, the, op you know, the open window and late-night student work. Simon, thank you. It's been fascinating talking to you. Your memory is incredible, the sense of detail even more so. Um, I really wish I could better understand why you don't like talking about yourself because you're great to listen to. Someone did say, you know, do you want to do a... I hesitate even to say the word. Someone asked me to say, do you want to do an autobiography? To which the answer is categorically no, because it would be just shockingly boring. I'm not interested, not interested in that. Other people have interesting lives. I'm happy just to ask the questions, not to answer them. But I made an exception for you. Well, I am honestly honoured, super chuffed and incredibly grateful. Thank you so much, sir. And don't forget, you can join Simon Mayer five days a week on Greatest Hits Radio, where he's playing the biggest songs of the 70s, 80s and 90s with the Drive Time team you came to know and love him for. If you fancy more great conversations with brilliant broadcasters, sir, then look no further. Our back catalogue is positively heaving with them. We have Eamon Holmes' episode in there alongside Ben Shepherd. Nick Knowles, Vernon Kay, Lorraine Kelly, Gabby Roslin, Ruth Langsford, Laura Whitmore, Griff Rhys-Jones. I've run out of breath, but there are so many more. So, what are you waiting for? Download now. As always, White Wine Question Time is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Ben Robbins for Yahoo and the studio's team there. Our editing is by Eleanor Humphreys and our beats come courtesy, as always, from Andy Bell. We'll be back next week with more great chat. Until then, thank you so much for loaning us your ears. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.